Welcome to episode 15 of the Ground to Sound podcast. Thank you so much for being here. This is it for season one. The 15th episode is the final episode of season one. I appreciate everyone who's been listening this whole time. Please don't forget to follow on Instagram at Stefan Alex Music. And be sure to keep an ear out for some new episodes in the beginning of 2021. Coming to you late January, early February. I'll be getting on those season two episodes. But before we worry about that, let's focus on this episode. And on this one, I spoke with Molly Jonke. She is the director of A&R at Atlas Music Publishing. She currently resides in Nashville. And we really just talk about her love of coffee and when that started and how she got into the publishing world of the music industry. And for a lot of young songwriters, bands, producers, um, publishing is something that is super important. And if you're not well versed in it yet, you really should be. So I really hope that you find this very informative. I know I did. It was so nice meeting Molly and talking to her. So please enjoy my conversation with Molly Jonke. I'd like starting with the, with the coffee conversation. So now I know you're a coffee drinker and I just wonder, what does that look like for you on a daily basis, your coffee life? Oh, I got to start every morning with at least two cups of coffee. Um, actually, if I have more than that, then I definitely get like jittery and wired and crazy. So I usually try to like cut myself off. Um, but I'm definitely, I require it every morning. I've been using a Keurig for the last couple mm -hmm. of months, which I'm not a fan of. So I'm definitely gonna make the move back to like, just a good old like drip yeah. coffee, where I can like top it off throughout the morning and then not really know how much I'm actually consuming. <laughs> That's right, you <laughs> lose count when you do it like that. Cause I, yeah, I've been doing the, do. the, the Keurig also, just cause I think just out of laziness and we had it and it wasn't until we had some family over that they started using it. And I was like, oh, wow, that's so easy. It makes a cup of coffee for you like that. And it's been sitting at our place for so long. And I'm like, maybe I'll start using it. I know. It is so easy and convenient, but I feel bad as someone who cares about the environment. You know, like the pods, they just like, they're so, they feel so wasteful and they're expensive. So I'm kind of like, ah, oh, I don't know. So I'm, I'm, I got to switch back to the drip coffee. And I'm definitely only just, just a little bit of half and half no sugar, you know, I'm not fancy about my coffee and I'm not a coffee snob by any means. Um, but I just like, I love it as a part of my like morning ritual. And yeah, just, I, I just need it every morning. I look forward to it. <laughs> now, when did that start for you? Was it pretty early on? Yeah, I think when I was around like 12 or 13. Oh, wow. Okay. And I remember when I first started drinking coffee, I would drink it with those, you know, those like creamers that were like French vanilla and like stuff mm -hmm. like that. And yep. then I feel like I drank it that way all through like even like through college. And then I tried to, you know, you reach a certain point, at least as a woman, when you're in your like mid 20s, where you're like, oh, I can't eat and drink everything as much as I want and not stay like, and not put on like 20 pounds. So, <laughs> so I started being like, oh, where can I cut back on the calories? And then you started seeing how those things add up and then with the sugar and everything. So I, but I still need like my half and half. Um, and mm. I, but I just cut sugar out altogether in my coffee. Um, but part of what really got me into coffee, especially like in high school, I became obsessed with Wawa coffee and oh okay you have wawa's up there in jersey right yes but only like in the past 10 years i know it originally came was is it originally from like pennsylvania or something I, yeah i think it's originally from yeah the, the philadelphia area so i grew up with mm -hmm. it and i was just like obsessed with it and so every time i go home i like that's my jam i need a wawa coffee yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that started pretty young for you i mean i wasn't I definitely wasn't drinking coffee. Yeah, that I, young. I guess I was. I don't know if I, I don't know if I, I mean, I think I was, yeah, around 13, maybe 14, but yeah, I was pretty young. I just, I don't know. It just like smelled really good to me. And then I just, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How old were so, you? Um, I don't even, probably when I started drinking it regularly, I was late teens, early twenties. Okay. Yeah. And it was one of those, 
I was going to film school in New York City. So I would go to those food carts and uh, just get coffee from there. And it became a really regular thing because it was like early mornings, late nights. Mm -hmm. And then that's when it was, that's when it became more out of necessity. And it wasn't so much getting these like frappuccinos at at Starbucks (laughs) or something. (laughs) Yeah. I don't even like those sort of things. They're just, it's too much. There's like too much sugar and it's really just a milkshake, which I love milkshakes, but that's not, (laughs) it's really not first thing in the morning. Yeah. It's just a little too much. Um, but yeah, I, I love my coffee for sure. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, so you're young drinking your coffee, but were you also young when you discovered, um, like a love for music being that you're in the music industry, did that hit you pretty early? Yeah. I was singing was really like my first love. I really started singing when I was like, I mean, literally like three years old. There's like really embarrassing home videotapes of me just like belting my little heart out. And I was just always so into it. And, um, and as I got older, you know, in school and I was always part of like the choir and stuff like that. And, um, and then once I hit middle school, I just like really fell in love with musical theater. And that was kind of like really where all my like kind of, um, music background really stems from. Um, I was just, yeah, just really heavily involved in it. Um, all through middle school and high school, I, you know, I did this, did the spring play, this, uh, the spring musical, the fall play. And then I was in community theater during the summer. Um, and then in high school, I was the jazz band vocalist, which was so much fun. And it was like my favorite thing to do. Um, and then I was also a part of the choir and then I would even, you know, sing competitively, you know, like going to regionals and states and, um, and I took vocal lessons for pretty much all through my teenage years. I mean, for like seven or eight years. And so I was really, really heavily involved in music in that sense. Um, and I was more classically trained. So I, you know, I didn't come from this background of, you know, bands, which I know you did. Um, mm-hmm. But so a little different in that sense. Um, and I thought I was going to go to school for vocal performance even. And I uh, started applying to all these like conservatories and stuff like that. And then I realized that I have no desire to actually be classically trained and go far that far into it. It's like, Mm. I I was like, that's not even what I like to sing. (laughs) Right. But you you know, as you're 18 years old, you're like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. Um, So I decided that I was just like, you know what, if I want to do music, I don't really need a degree in it. And so that kind of what spurred me to just be like, I just need to go to school in New York city. So that's, that's what I need to do. So that's why I ended up going to Fordham and um, it was really my time there that I started um, really starting learning more about the business side of things Um, because I really didn't know much about it beforehand. Was that through school or like just yeah, it was through, through doing internships, really. Um, right, okay. Yeah, and you know, and you had to be enrolled in school to do the internships. Yeah. Um, so I started interning at, um, I, I interned at like a small record label called Engine Room Recordings for a semester. Um, I actually interned at the Public Theater for a little bit, which was really cool, um, a little different. Um, but the most, I would say, influential um, internship for me was... Uh, Atlantic Records and so I spent an entire year there and I did a semester in Julie Greenwald's office um, who is not even sure what her current title is I think she's COO Um, but she heads up you know even at the time she you know really had up really the marketing of all of Atlantic's um, roster and then I did a semester in Craig Kalman's office and I think he's currently in the CEO and I, I might be wrong on that everyone's titles, but he is the head of A&R essentially and still is to this mm-hmm. day. Um, and the experience was incredible just, um, you know, working with, you know, their teams and I just learned so much about the business side of things. 
um, and really what A&R even was, because, you know, you hear about record labels and this and that, but then, you know, and I, especially for me coming from more of this like musical theater background, um, it was, it was just a great education. Yeah. You know, what was your understanding of pop music at the time when you were entering a place like Atlantic? Did you know much about their artists? Did you know much about what was going on on the radio? Were you still just really into the theater? I mean, music I was always into pop. Theater? I was always into pop music. It wasn't like I, yeah. you know, say as a performer um, and music that I love to sing wasn't necessarily pop, but as a music listener, I was always a pop girl. Like I was obsessed with the Spice Girls when, you know, <laughs> I was a kid. Yeah. Um, I loved like Asa Bass and then Fiona Apple. Um, you know, even like, you know, the Britney Spears, Backstreet Boys stuff. Like every, I loved yeah. everything though. I, and then what was so cool about, you know, I think we're about the same age, you know, during that time when we were like teenagers, everything was on the radio, you know, from Eminem yeah. to Britney Spears to, you know, all time low. Like it was just such right, a, like heavy. Yeah. yeah. Even like those heavy rock, like corn and biscuit. <laughs> Remember like that new metal? Yes. I listen to, I listen to some of that now just to be like, I can't believe this was played on pop radio. I know. Right. Like Fred Durst was a pop star. <laughs> Back in, you know, 1999, 2000. And I look at him like, wow, I just, but then I guess people can look at, I don't know, po the Post Malones of the world and they were just, I don't know yeah. if they compare, but yeah, it just seems like such a different, different world. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is. I mean, you listen to, you know, pop radio today, it's all pretty, you know, it's pretty, it's all kind of stays on the same plane in terms of, and it's right. very, very mm -hmm. narrow of a genre these days of what the, I will, pop radio will actually play. Um, so I'm definitely, I feel like I'm a kid of the nineties, you know, where you just grow up listening to so much different kinds of music and loving yeah. it all. Like, you don't feel like you have to be pigeonholed into just being into hip hop or pop or whatnot. Cause like top 40 radio made you like everything. Right. And, um, and I, yeah, and that's really, really missing, um, you know, these days. But I would say that's a benefit of Spotify now, because at least now you have like the history of music right there at your fingertips. Um, they need to play, pay songwriters better. And that's a whole other conversation. Right, right. <laughs> but, um, yeah. but as a consumer, it's amazing. It's great for the consumer, for sure. Yeah, because I, I mean, I used to have the Backstreet Boys album, the Eminem album, the, the whatever corn album, the heavy rock album. And so, yeah, it really has Spotify's totally change the game and i mean we can get into your thoughts on on how that is but just going in terms of your story in some sort of timeline when you say you were just learning about this a and r term and i'll say when i was in my 20s doing the whole band thing and thinking about what an a and r is there really is like you look at an a and r like this glorified like they're my ticket you know like this is you know the a and r knows what's going on he's going to the shows he she is going to the shows at night and picking the bands and they know what they're doing. And, you know, did you have any grasp, any type of idea? Like, how did you learn what an A&R was? I, yeah, I don't specifically remember, but I mean, definitely in my time that you kind of learn like, oh, this is the coolest job around. This is what you want to <laughs> do, you know? Yeah. So when I graduated, um, in my mind, I was like, I'm going to be a label A&R. That's what I'm going to do. Um, so luckily, I mean, I had really great relationships because of my internship and um, specifically with, I worked really closely with Julie Grunwald's assistant at the time. And um, she was such a wonderful advocate for me and really helped me, you know, find my first job. And, you know, it was a really scary time because the economy had just crashed. I literally graduated the worst time possible. <laughs> so there was like no jobs to begin with, let alone wanting to work in music, which is already incredibly difficult to begin with. Right. Um, but so in my, in my mind, as I said, I'm like, I, I'm going to be a label A&R. That's what I'm going to do. And so I, I interviewed for a couple of those positions. And then um, I then interviewed for... A creative assistant position at a company called Cherry Lane Music, um, which was an independent publishing company. 
And I, of course, at the time had no idea what publishing even was. But of course, I'm just like, I want to work in music and it's a creative position. That's perfect. So I got the job and I am in incredibly grateful that I did and that I ended up in publishing. Because um, as I learned throughout the role there, that publishing really is all about the song, you know, and working with songwriters. And it's so cool to be, you know, as a part you know, you're really seeing the origin of where music comes from as a publisher. Um, so yeah, Cherry Lane was a great company. You know, they had uh, the Black Eyed Peas when they were at their peak, um, John Legend, the John Denver catalog, Elvis Presley catalog, Quincy Jones. Um, so many, so many great uh, writers and catalogs. And it was, a, it was great because it was a family owned company I'd been around for 50 years. Um, so that was my first, you know, said my foray into uh, publishing and I've been in it ever since. And I'm incredibly grateful to, to have been. <laughs> yeah. So, so what were some of the things you were learning early on about the publishing process that, that sort of, I don't know, maybe surprised you or really anything caught you off guard? Just like you, like you were saying, the way the song comes about. What were some, do you have any like specifics as to what were some things you were kind of picking up mm -hmm. back then when you first started? Yeah, well, when I first started, what was cool about being the creative assistant was that I was supporting both the A&R staff and the sync staff. So initially when I got into it, I was just learning really what a publisher did because there, there's a lot of different facets involved. And part of it is, signing songwriters because at the end of the day that is what publishers work with songwriters um to the company and obviously that's what a and r does and you know i started getting involved in the pitching process which means taking those songs and um sending them to record labels for a and r's that are label a and r's that are looking for songs for their artists because as i'm sure as you know and probably a lot of your listeners know a lot of artists don't actually write their own music um, that has changed, I think, a lot over the last probably decade or so, but you're always going to have these pop stars and people who are just really, they're performers. That's what they do. Um, so I got involved in the pitching process and then kind of was able to understand a little bit more of that, how, because A&R as a publisher is different as A&R for a label in that sense, because you're working directly with the songwriters and helping craft the song and then taking those songs and getting, trying to get them placed. Mm -hmm. Um, and then another big part of it is setting up collaborations with other songwriters to create those songs. And then on the other side of it, you have the sync team who, you know, they take those songs and they get them placed in ads and TVs and TV shows and, um, all sorts of media. So for me at the time, I was kind of like, Ooh, both seem kind of cool. What do I want to do? You know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, but ultimately, you know, I really started wanting to learn more about A&R and I just continued to gravitate towards that real hands-on creative space. Um, so it was, it was awesome because I was there for a year um, and learned all of these great things. And then another thing I learned about publishing is that, you know, companies get sold all the time. <laughs> so there's been, <laughs> so much consolidation yeah. <laughs> so i learned you know that you know about the the process of being bought out pretty early right. on in my career <laughs> oh. but when, when you're when you're picking all this information up and you're seeing okay i need to start connecting songwriters with producers and getting co-writes um did you have people you had met along the way how did you go about even meeting anybody to connect a songwriter with mm -hmm. Where, where are you finding these people? So when I was working at Cherry Lane, I wasn't as involved in that yet. I was still just kind of learning the ins and outs of the business, but I was very lucky that one of my, one of the A&Rs there, who's still one of my best friends to this day, um, Jill Padone is her name. You know, she kind of took me under her wing and really she would bring me out to shows and introduce me to people because you, what you do learn about this business, it's totally relationship driven. Um, so, I was very lucky and that she immediately kind of started giving me those introductions so I could start expanding my network um, pretty early on. And then when um, Cherry Lane got bought out by BMG, 
um, the, the head of creative at Cherry Lane, he also left and went to go to a company called Amagam. And he brought me over to be a part of the A&R staff there. So that was really when I was at Amagam is when I really started getting my hands dirty in terms of A&R. Um, but what was interesting for me there, I was really more focused on artists and bands in particular at that time. Okay. So I wasn't doing actually as much of the actual um, collaborations and song pitching because I was signing people who wrote their own music and then would release it out into the world. Um, so I signed, you know, a couple, a lot of bands that did really well in sync, this, uh, this guy called Wakey Wakey, um, I signed another band that was signed to, um, RCA called Hunter Hunted that did amazing in sync. Um, I signed the Revivalists while I was there. Oh, great band. Yeah. Yeah. And they were amazing. Um, and really good guys. And it's been really fun to see them, you know, go on to have such incredible success. Um, and while I was there, we also signed, you know, Mark Ronson, we brought in the Elvis Presley catalog. Um, really, we really built the company from not quite the ground up because they were a Dutch based company, but they didn't have any real presence in the U S. So that's kind of what Mm. we were doing. Okay. So when you're uh, going out and finding bands, like you're saying, is that when you're out and about, you know, going to shows and really just doing, you know, it sounds very similar to what an A&R at a label would do, at least that particular part of it. Yes, So definitely. Um, I, I would be out at shows almost every night, really, you know, just kind of bopping around the Lower East Side in Brooklyn when a lot of those venues were still open. Um, a lot of them have closed since then. But at this time, you know, there was kind of like this cool indie electronic dance scene sort of going on still. Um, and you, you had kind of like the tail end too of these like, you know, great New York bands that came out in the early aughts. Um, you know, LCD sound system was still around, but they kind of started wrapping up and um, had like Grizzly Bear and just, you know, really still really cool stuff coming out of there. But um, it was starting, it was definitely the tail end of it. And then on the songwriter side of things, people were really starting to or already had started to really leave New York. Um, so the scene was starting to sort of, you know, dissipate a bit there, which, um, but even when I, you know, I was at Imogen for, or Amagam, there was always a lot of confusion over how you actually pronounce the name. <laughs> yeah, I, spoke to Adam, yeah. I spoke to Adam about that too. He was, he gave me like three different ways. I know it's such a mess. <laughs> it's, it's a mess. Thank God they have since been bought as you know, there is a trend with it. <laughs> it's been bought by Concord. Right. So the brand is like no longer in existence and <laughs> which is for the best. <laughs> right. No one could get the name right. <laughs> um, I always called it Imogen, but then I switched to Amalgam because that's what other people seem to say, but it's just very confusing. <laughs> so, so from there, where do you, where do you end up after so, yeah. Amalgam? Yeah, I was there for about four years. And then again, um, my, the same boss, Rich, he decided he wanted to leave to start Atlas. And that is where I am today. And so I've been with the company now for six or seven years, certainly lose count. And um, kind of the same thing, you know, we really just built the company from the ground up, really this time from the ground up. I mean, we had, we really started it from scratch. Um, so in that time, you know, we, we initially we had you know Toby Gad on our roster who he wrote um, a lot of really big songs including If I Were a Boy for Beyonce um, All of Me for John Legend um, the list goes on a lot of you know a lot of hits in the more like the pop space um, mm-hmm. we have you know Warren Haynes um, and then I continue I've been signing a lot of more you know this is kind of the point in my career where I started signing more. Uh, songwriters and really started to get more heavily involved in more of the um, collaboration process and pitching process and um, and I did do that a little bit at Amalgam that's where I started to do it with some of our baby writers that were just kind of getting going but uh, it was really at Atlas that I I really you know it's what I primarily do now Um, part of it too is just kind of you know music has changed in that 
bands really aren't a thing anymore. Um, right. You know, it's, as I'm sure you know, it's, it's hard to be in a band these days. <laughs> I mean, it's hard <laughs> to be in a band probably any time, but even more so now. Right. right. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, if you're an, an individual artist, you're pocketing all the money for yourself. But if you split it sure. four or five ways, it gets really tough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, was, was, sorry, was Atlas started in New York City? Yes. Okay. Yeah, so okay. started in New York. Um, and then we, but we quickly opened a, an LA office. Um, so we were in New York and LA for a long time. And then I, about two and a half years ago, almost three years ago now, um, as I mentioned previous, you know, a lot of the songwriters had really started to leave New York, unfortunately. And um, I was just kind of feeling a little, um, it's kind of antsy and bored being there, which is insane to say about living in New York City. <laughs> right, I know. <laughs> but, you know, I, 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 yeah. I, at that point, though, I had a really good grasp of like the songwriting community there. And I'd signed a number of writers that were based out of there, and they, many of them still are to this day. Um, and, you know, I, I, I had my network of people, and, but there just wasn't really a lot going on there. Um, because really most of the pop records are still, to, you know, they're created out of LA. And so most people, you know, you're going to go where the artists are, you're going to go where the other songwriters are. Um, but I started hearing about how Nashville was really growing as a pop town and it was becoming so much more than country music. So that was really, you know, kind of got my wheels turning and I asked my boss if I could, you know, if he would consider me relocating to Nashville because um, I just felt like there was more happening here. And thankfully he was really supportive and thought it was a really great idea. And so I moved down here about two and a half years ago. So I kind, mm. of, kind of essentially opened a Nashville office for Atlas essentially. Oh, okay. Okay, so now, uh, well, actually, what, what you were saying about New York earlier is, my thought is, so many things get lost in New York City because it is so big and, you know, there's just so much going on. I, I can only imagine, like, I when I think of New York City, I don't imagine the type of community that I know people can build as songwriters and producers in a place like Nashville. Yeah, that was so noticeable when I moved down here. Because um, the thing about New York, New York is everything. It's finance, you know, it's, you, right. know, it's, it's yeah. you know, and, and it's, you know, and it's the center of the universe, you know, everything is there and it's an amazing city and I still love it. But just the nature of the city doesn't allow to have this like tight knit community of artists and writers to really like, mm -hmm. um, bond with each other and really have that support system. So when I moved here, it, it just like, I found it just so cool and so inviting to just be able to just kind of be out any night of the week. I mean, obviously not currently, but <laughs> you <Right>. know, free <laughs> COVID, um, just being able to be out and you'd always run into people, whether it be other A&Rs or songwriters or artists. And, um, and it's just such a lovely say community of people. And, it was so easy to meet everyone that I needed to know fairly quickly because everyone was just so helpful And one meeting would just quickly lead to three other meetings. Cause they'd be like, Oh, you don't know so-and-so. Oh, you need to meet them and let me connect you. And it would just, it happened so quickly. Um, so it was, it's just a, for me too, on a personal level, it's just, it was just a very nice change of pace from New York, you know? Um, right. So I, I really do believe Nashville is a really special town. It still needs, you know, on the pop side of things, it's definitely, it's got its challenges for songwriters that are here. Um, but my hope is that more writers will, you know, or more artists rather will, you know, come and live here and have roots here and hopefully get signed to labels out of here. And, and that would help, you know, change things a little further. But in the meantime, it's really great that more and more artists are traveling here for at least sessions and wanting to write songs here because I think you, you won't find better lyricists here really than anywhere else. Cause it, you know, in that sense, 
the song, the lyric is king in this town. Yeah. I mean, just for, for a songwriter, I'm sure just being in a place like Nashville, first of all, so much more affordable. You can't, yeah. <laughs> you, you can't be like a struggling songwriter and just meet up with all your struggling songwriter friends and go hang out in New York city every day. This is not yeah. feasible. You just can't live there. Yeah. You know? Yeah, no, that makes a huge difference. And I think that's what part of what allows this community to really grow and flourish because yeah, I mean, you can find a room here for 400 bucks a month if you really want to, you know, and right. you know, I mean, you'd be living in very dire straits if on $400 <laughs> <laughs> New York City. <laughs> so yeah, yeah it's um, yeah, yeah I, I, and and even in LA, LA is very expensive, also. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'll just go on once in a while and just look at some Nashville prices, and I'm ready to pack up the family and <laughs> and go. Believe me, come on down. <laughs> it's the place to be. <laughs> oh I, I, yeah, <laughs> that conversation's for another day. But, uh, <laughs> Um, so, I mean, being that now you've actually, you've had a lot of experience from the time you first started your internships, what are you noticing are some big differences when it comes to publishing from the time you started to now? Um, well, definitely that more artists, even if they're not really writers, they want to be a part of the writing process. Um, so, I mean, now more than ever, it is so important to be in the room with the artist if you want to get your song cut. Um, the pitch game is incredibly difficult, incredibly competitive. Um, I mean, obviously artists will take outside songs that they have nothing to do with if it's a smash hit, that no brainer sort of thing. Um, right. But your, your odds of getting a cut are much, much greater if you're in the room and actually, you know, the artist is a part of the writing process. Um, so for me, that's really one of my biggest, I'm really more focused on my writers getting really quality sessions. Um, I mean, obviously, oh, there should always be quality, but by quality, I mean really, really trying to prioritize them being in the room with um, major label artists because if the song, if they do like the song and they, they decide to cut it and they decide to release it, there'll be actually, you know, real momentum behind it and the people can be investing it and marketing it and all those things. Mm -hmm. um, obviously too, I want my writers to always be expanding and, you know, creating new networks and meeting new people. And I, I certainly put things forward that I think that they just love and might really vibe with. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's gotta be really a focus on, on the artist sessions in that sense. Um, and then, yeah, so there still is that, that connection that, you know, the importance of that song is always there and will always be there. It really seems like people are picking up on, oh, publishing is where the money is. We got to get our names on the publishing and, you know, the, the, the artists really wanting to be a part of that when sometimes, I mean, from what I, stories I hear is, you know, the artists aren't really doing, some artists aren't really doing much and they're getting percentages here and there. Maybe that's changed. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think, I mean, it totally depends on the artist. You know, there are obviously artists sure. that are incredible writers. Um, and then there are ones that do really genuinely try and they want it, you know, and, and maybe they are doing it just because they want the publishing or maybe they really have something to say and they're just, it's just not their strength, but they have an incredible voice and incredible, you know, you know, they're great performers, you know, everyone obviously has their different strengths in that sense. Um, I've always, for me, a lot of my writers tend to be both artists and writers. So, which I've always, I've always enjoyed working with those type of people because, you know, I like being able to put up sessions and get cuts and take songs, be able to pitch them and all that, those sort of things. But it's so nice to know that there is an outlet for music for them. Cause I think for certain songwriters, it can be a little frustrating if, you know, the songs, when, if you're just a pure songwriter, you are completely relying on the artists or the labels to get the music out into the world. So I have a lot of, a lot of my clients really, you know, 
they have that artist side of them to really to feed that and so I like it too because it means that there's a flow of releases and I think it's a really really great creative outlet but I also get to I mean setting up collaborations are really like one of my favorite things to do and I love hearing what comes out of them so I you know I kind of get to dabble in both worlds in that sense so which is fun yeah and uh vice versa I mean if they're strictly an artist they're really reliant on the songwriter yeah and then they just kind of sit stagnant if they can't get you know if they can't get the song yeah done. I mean luckily most of my I, my writers who are artists they're really fantastic writers in their own right and you know what's part of been what's been interesting with um with covid and everyone kind of you know obviously quarantining a lot of them have just been like you know what i'm just gonna go right on my own and and do my thing so there's been fewer collaborations being had in that sense but it's great when you have strong writers to begin with because you know they can go off and write music by themselves and be perfectly fine <laughs> yeah yeah i mean that's so awesome um so going into what you mentioned before with Spotify and streaming, like you mentioned, we're probably around the same age. So we actually saw, you know, we were going to stores and buying physical CDs and now we have an entire library of music in our pocket. So you can talk to it in a publishing sense or in a more personal sense as to um, how has that changed your relationship to music? Maybe you can say as a consumer or, you know, yeah. in, in work. I mean, however. as a consumer, I think it's the best thing ever. Um, I mean, I remember obviously, you know, CDs were 20 bucks a pop. And oftentimes yeah. you're buying it for the one song. You know, everyone knows this. And it's, you know, it was a kind of a very frustrating way to consume music. And then, and that's why ultimately, you know, we all dabbled with Napster and, <laughs> and you know, and that wasn't good for the yeah. music business either. Um, right. But, it, you know, you just have this hunger for, especially when you're, you're, you know, when you're middle school, high school years are such formative years also for how you listen to music, you know, like studies have been done to show that we always go back to the music of those, this time in our lives because it's just so, you know, we grow so much during that time and we're so influenced by the music of that time. Right. So during that time, you just want to listen to everything out there, everything possible, but you don't have $20 to spend, you know, you I don't know how much allowance you get. <laughs> you know, right. As a kid, yeah. you don't have that kind of money. So now, I mean, gosh, if I had Spotify now at that age, I would just be like gobbling everything up. I feel like, so yeah. um, I do feel like as a consumer, sometimes it, is overwhelming you know you go to it and you're like what do i want to listen to i don't even remember you know um but the i think the playlists playlists are help and i, I do like how spotify does the daily mixes and you know so if you're feeling completely lost you can just throw that on um and really on the recorded side of things you know business is better than ever you know it really streaming yeah. has saved the music industry in a lot of ways and i think it's a fantastic way to listen um so on that sense i'm all for it and and really overall i'm all for it i think it's there it's a fantastic platform i mean just streaming in general um but that being said there is a real real issue with um payouts on the songwriting side um really the lion's share of money is being paid out on the master side of things which is typically to the record labels um although you do have independent artists who do own their own masters and they actually make decent living doing that, you know? Um, but you know, with, you know, there's two sides, you have the master, the master side, the recording side, which is the record label. And then you have the publishing side and, and those are the songwriters. And on that side, it's just, it's a totally different rate. And, um, I always, I don't do the best job of explaining this, so I don't, because <laughs> it is complicated, it's okay. but, um, right. I do know, you know, but what are, you know, the publishers have been arguing that it really should be um, the way in, in this sync world, um, it's paid out 50-50, both publishing and master side. So we treat each of those sides equally as important when it, when a sync is licensed. And as I said earlier, sync, you know, is a placement on a TV show, ad, anything like that. Um, so our argument is, well, why wouldn't, why is it not equal when it comes to a stream, 
you know, shouldn't it be paid out equally to the publishing side and the master side? Um, so I think there's, a, there's definitely ways for us to go about there and get there. And, you know, we have a really wonderful organization called the NMPA, the, the National Publisher, Music Publishers Association, um, that goes to, you know, Washington to lobby and try to make, you know, make these changes for, on behalf of songwriters. Um, but it gets tricky because, you know, with the majors, um, you know, and that would be, you know, like Warner, Universal, Sony, they have both a publishing entity and a, you know, a label entity. And yeah. they're making so much money on the label side, they don't have any real incentive to actually, you know, change it up on the publishing side. Um, because they're making that money anyway, but right. but it's not helping the songwriters. <laughs> so, um, so that's why as a, you know, as a independent publishing company, we don't have that, um, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Uh, some kind of leverage. Yeah, you know, or not leverage, but you know, it's uh, where are we? We our interests are solely the songwriters. Is what I'm trying to say. You know, as okay. you know, um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's tough because uh, the other thing too is that the rate is set by was set by Congress like decades ago, and so that's why Congress has to be the one to pass it to change it. And obviously, as we all know. Congress has other things that they're working mm -hmm. on these days. <laughs> right. <laughs> so um, right. hopefully it will change though, because, um, you know, it's, we want to have quality people going into music, you know, and we want them to be able to support themselves. Yeah. Yeah. That, that seems to be the battle that's being fought that I keep hearing about. And it, I mean, I haven't heard anything that makes me think, you know, things are changing soon. Um, it's unfortunate, but, you know, talking more on like the, the streaming end of things, personally, I think it's, it's great. It's as like, I agree with everything you were saying. I think it's turned some people into passive listeners instead of active listeners. I would agree with that. Um, you know, and that's, that's great for streams. Maybe you got someone washing the dishes and they just got a playlist going and your song is getting streamed, you know? Um, but I think that there's definitely, you know, the good and the bad, like you're mentioning. I would agree with that. I would make the argument though, that I think, I don't think the medium of how you listen to music will determine whether or not you are a passionate music listener or a passive music listener. Cause I think the people who are really passionate about music, they're the ones showing up to concerts right. all the time. You know, um, they're the ones that will buy the act on vinyl, even though it's on, on streaming, you know? And mm -hmm. I think, I think you're always going to have people who just love music more than anything. And you're going to go to gazillion concerts a year and all that good stuff. And then I think, and then you're going to have people who just don't really, they like music in the background, but don't really feel one way or the other. They have their genre, they have their favorites, and but they're not really going to be exploring new music. But I actually think that's why Spotify is really helpful because I think you capture more of those people and actually yeah, can make money off of them, frankly, mm -hmm. more so than because now they're paying $120 a year, you know, if you're, if you're on Spotify, as opposed to them just buying maybe one CD a year. Right. And just kind of maybe checking out the top 10 same songs that we're playing on the radio. Yeah. It, it is definitely turning that average listener that maybe just kind of knows a couple songs from the radio and turning them into, you know, people who are discovering a lot more than they otherwise yeah. would have. Yeah. I mean, and I totally get to how people might be um, distraught over the, how the album has really started to go away and it has become a singles market again, for sure. Um, right. Mm -hmm. But I think you'll always have artists who are artists to produce singles and artists that will create a body of work and they want to put out an album. Um, Cause no one is, you're not forced to do one thing or the other because of Spotify. Um, right. But that being said, because of the nature of how we listen to music now too, singles are 
just so important for the livelihoods of particularly songwriters. Um, mm -hmm. Getting an album cut these days is almost meaningless. So, right, and that's really where the challenge lies. I mean, if you want to play in the game right now, you have to stay relevant. You know, it's not put out these 10 songs tour for two years and then you don't hear from the band for another year. You know, you don't hear from the band three years after that. And now you just wait for 10 more songs. If you want to stay in the game, you're putting one song, two songs, three songs, and then, you know, every few months. And that's how, absolutely. that's how a lot of people have figured out to do it. And I mean, it's smart if you want to, you know, keep your name out there. You don't want people to forget who you are. You're now going up against so much more than you ever were. It's true. And and I kind of, I think that, and there's no reason kind of not to do that, right? Because I mean, to, right, to write yeah. a song, you know, you can write a song in a day or two. And then the techno with the technology we have, you can cut it. And if you want, you could have it out by the end of the week if you really wanted to. Mm -hmm. um, so there really isn't a reason to not, you know, continue to have a body of work put out there. If you, if you, if you are a very prolific writer or artist, whatever type of artist you are. Um, but it's also the nature of just, you know, how society is today. There's so many distractions now. Cause it's like, yeah. we're not just fighting other artists and other music. We're fighting social media and the news and everything that's going on. So trying to get people to pay attention is harder than ever. And yeah. um, I mean, I think it's, you know, it's, I think it's great that people can so easily distribute their own music now and get it out to the world if they want to. But on the flip side of that it is cluttered, cluttered the space so much that as listeners, we can become very overwhelmed. Um, and it gets, and it gets harder to have your music heard when there's just, when you're competing with not just the Beatles now, <laughs> you right. know, and Billy Joel and Led Zeppelin, and then on top of it, Britney Spears and Backstreet Boys, and then Post Malone, you know, and Ariana Grande. Like, there's so much content um, that the listener can definitely feel like, where do I even start? And then as the artist, you're like, how do I get people to listen to my music? Yeah. Yeah, you're definitely just, like I've said before on this podcast, I'm just very happy not to be an artist fighting for that space right now. And that if I had to be, I would need a great team to like figure that out because I couldn't even, you know, wrap my head around that it's, right now. Really fighting for the attention, like you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. Because like you said, you are fighting against the time they're spending on YouTube, on Instagram, on Twitter. And then hopefully they're listening to your song in the background, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, and it makes me grateful to be in publishing because we're really, you know, we're B2B business. You know, I'm my goal is to work with the labels and managers and lawyers and um, the PROs where our job really isn't to push it out to the public in that yeah. sense, you know? Yeah, that's great. Um, so, I mean, obviously being a publisher has its other challenges for sure, but um, at the end of the day, it is really gratifying to just be really at the genesis of the song and, and really, you know, see its creation and, you know, I'm not a songwriter, so obviously, otherwise, I like to think I'd be writing songs. <laughs> <laughs> so the next best thing is really cool to, though, you know, there is still such satisfaction in, you know, putting two people together and then writing an amazing song that ultimately becomes someone's single or something like that. And you're like, oh, that would not have happened if I didn't do that, you know? Right, and yeah. so there is those small satisfactions and, um, and just seeing to, you know, music is so important. And I think now more than ever to, you know, I think people just need that release, that creative release, whether or not they are writing or, or just listening, however they're consuming it. Um, we just, it's just so important. And, you know, when I was trying to figure out what uh, I wanted to do with my life, I wanted to do something that was important. And I felt like, being in music was important. And I still feel that way. Yeah. Um, before I let you go, I, I just want to know if you have anything um, for a young songwriter, producer, anything you might tell, tell them as they're trying to get into this world and learning about publishing or. Oh, 
so much. Um, don't do it. No. Um, <laughs> Not enough time. Right? <laughs> no, you know, I would say, I mean, first off, I mean, let's assume here that we're in a post COVID world for a moment. Um, mm-hmm. But if you're really, really serious about being a writer, um, you really need to be in a city where you can connect with other writers and producers and people that can help really hone your craft. Um, and in this case, you know, it would be LA, I would say LA or Nashville, depending on your genre of music, maybe Atlanta, if you're doing more R&B hip hop, um, New York, I wouldn't advise because there's not a ton going on there these days. Um, and then really immersing yourself in that scene and in that community, because ultimately it's those connections that you make are really going to help elevate your career and help you create a career because not even just on the business side, but as a writer, it is still so relationship driven. And, you know, ultimately all these writers in LA, particularly, you know, they get into their circles of people that they have connected with. And then, you know, sessions pop up and you get pulled into a session and all of a sudden you're a part of a big record that, you know, you wouldn't have been able to do if you weren't there. So it's just really, really important to, you know, really become a part of the community and find your people too, you know, just because, you know, such and such is getting a ton of cuts and, you know, has a hit record doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to jive with that person and create a hit record either, you know, Um, there's going to be people that you work with better than others. And that's the other thing that's so important for songwriters that are just starting out, just work with everyone and really you figure out then who your people are. Cause you know, that's the first step is just kind of like lay the groundwork, figure out who you work with well with, and then you start narrowing down and then you start focusing your time on with people who, where you, that are productive and you're getting great songs from, and then it narrows further to like, okay, now I want to write with people who are, you know, getting legitimate cuts or that are artists signed to major labels. And then it narrows on further. Um, but also just know that it is a long, slow grind. It, you know, the stories that seem like it happened overnight, 99.9% of them, it did not. <laughs> you know, and I mean, people, it is, it's really, really tough being a songwriter and you have to really love it. And not only love it, you have to have to do it because otherwise you're you, you, otherwise you, it's too hard to make a living at it. You know, there are much, much easier things to do and easier ways to yeah. get to go about it, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, but if you do it right, I mean, it can be an incredible, satisfying and fruitful career. Um, so, you know, don't give up and you and keep fighting for it, but you're gonna have to work really hard for it too. Yeah, well, that's so cool. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure.